It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Introducing our new series of Justice, where we will be exploring what impact the physical environment can have on those who have experienced trauma. With me, prison philanthropist, and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. In the first episode of our Healing Spaces series, I discuss whether healing spaces in the justice system are possible and what this could look like. I talk to colleagues involved in the design of Hope Street, our pilot residential community for justice-involved women and their children, and the learning gathered so far on creating a trauma-informed space. Firstly, to begin this series, I speak with Lily Lewis, one Small Thing's Women's Involvement Advisor on her experiences in the justice system and the importance of physical space to support women's recovery from trauma. Hi, my name is Lily Lewis. I am the Women's Involvement Advisor at One Small Thing. Lily, so good to have you back on the podcast, as always, to get your wise words in amongst it all. And today we're talking about healing spaces within the justice system. And my first and very direct question to you, really, is do you even think that there can be healing spaces within the justice system? Yeah. So I've had a good think about this. I do think that we can have healing spaces within the justice system. However, I don't think we can have a healing space within a cell. Okay. And elaborate on that. So it just seems like common sense. If you're trying to heal anybody, you wouldn't put them in a metal box. So I do believe that within the justice system, we can create healing spaces. For example, what we've done at Hope Street, but I don't feel that within a prison setting, we can create that healing space. Okay. And what was it from your experience of being in prison that let's first of all concentrate on anything, and there might be nothing, anything that sort of lightened your day or were there moments where you were like oh I really needed that and that was a good thing yeah so there were two aspects of that so a really good thing was when I had the keys outside my door and my door was opening and I was able to come outside and able to bring Isabel that was a really good time and when you say you were able to go outside you mean onto the wing onto the wing yeah I think when I got to more open spaces a really good time would be able to walk around the grounds and feel freer. But also a really good time would be locked up away because that would be my safe space. That would be the time when I could lower my guard. I could meditate. I could journal and I could visualize about how I wanted my future. So both things would lighten my day in different ways. Okay. I think we all recognize, don't we? And you hear it 
I've heard it a lot recently on the radio and people talking about wellness and actually how important it is to be within nature. And of course, that's pretty much out of most prisons, completely stripped away, isn't it? Um, But then you do have little pockets in certain prisons where there is a bit of green space. But would you use that to sort of calm yourself down or would you... How would you use that time sort of near the green space? For me, I would walk either alone or there would be a few of the women that we would just walk and chat. And I think for me, just the fresh air, it's so undervalued that you can just go out and breathe in fresh air. And it was, you know, quite funny when I first got into a cell, there was a tiny slit window. And whenever my cell mate went out, I'd go to the window and like sniff in the air because I felt so claustrophobic. And I think just walking, looking at the sky was also a huge thing. Isabel and I would have this thing that if we were missing each other, we would both look at the sky and hopefully we would feel that. And I got a lot from that. I'm quite spiritual anyway. And I I think when you're locked away, you get another sense that 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 becomes alive because you you have to use that. Um, But most definitely green space, fresh air, that was all of them, the things I used as grounding techniques. Okay. And then it's interesting also what you say about actually having the safety of the door closing and have that having that quiet. Because I think a lot of people who either haven't been in prison or haven't worked in prisons find that really confusing. Often people will say to me, oh, well, if you feel safe and happy in prison, it means it's a holiday camp. And it's like, no. So do you want to elaborate yeah. a bit more on why that felt safe? Yeah, I think unless you've been inside a prison and sort of left to roam free, going to education, going to work, the noise and the hustle and bustle of 300, 400 women all moving at a similar time, um, a lot of them were very young and really boisterous. And I found that really sort of overpowering for me. And you were constantly on your guard because there was women fighting, screaming. There was women arguing with prison officers. And it's constant while you're out. There's, you can't just walk freely through the wing. So for me, when that door was closed and locked, I knew nobody else could come in. At quarter past seven, I knew nobody was coming in until seven the next morning. So that was just my time to just let, let myself go, let my guard down get my jammers on, start to unwind, start to process what what happened through the day, I guess. Yeah. And what about then on the flip side, the sort of damaging elements of your physical surroundings? Yeah. So I think for me, I always looked pale. I literally looked grey. Also, my hair went really thin. I don't know whether that was poor diet, stress, a mixture of everything. But you're just not getting any sunlight. You're probably getting at a max an hour, two hours, if you're really lucky, a day. Because although you got association, that didn't always mean coming out of the building. It was still within the wing. So I just feel that, again, not having any light or air for you was physically damaging. I felt weak a lot as well. Like, just no no motivation, sluggish. Again, probably a combination of no natural light, small mm. spaces. And then um, go back to your window because um, I can imagine what the window was like because I've seen them, but lots of people listening probably have no idea what a prison window really looks like um, yeah. or how far they open or not. 
it slid almost like a blind, but then behind the blind was mesh. So there was no actual window. But if you put the blind so it was aligned, you would get some air. Right. And obviously in front of my new padmate, I didn't want to be seen to be sniffing at the air at the window. Get some fresh air in. Every time she left, I would do it. And I would like, really? like I'd feel like I, I needed it. I needed the air to breathe. And also sort of inside prisons, A, sounded like you were sharing a cell for at least part of your sentence, but just that stale air of the wing no air coming in from anywhere because all the doors are shut, aren't they? And all the windows only open a tiny, tiny fraction for security reasons. Yeah, and one thing I do remember, before they banned smoking in prisons, I was with one girl who wanted to smoke in the cell when the officers were gone, and she didn't have cigarette papers, so she would put her tobacco in a Tampax wrapper and smoke right. that in the cell, <laughs> you know. Okay. Must, but I don't smoke, and it was so over. You know, it was just near on unbearable. Well, yeah, and I can imagine the chemicals. I mean, the chemicals and cigarettes, anyway. But the chemicals and smoking a Tampax, um, anyway. Let's move on. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so let's think a little bit then about designers who might be designing something like Hope Street, women's centres, accommodation for women and children. What do you think are the the key elements, particularly for people who've experienced trauma? And of course, as you well know, we're talking about women who've suffered, you know, high levels of domestic abuse, interpersonal sexual abuse, you know, all those sorts of horrors that we're talking about. So what what makes the difference? I think colours and textures initially. Definitely for me, colour is a huge thing that has a massive impact on my mental health, actually. I talk about in prison, we had a green duvet everybody had the standard green it was a funny green maybe an army green and now I I could never have a green duvet ever go back to the tracksuits they were either grey or red you know when I put that on I feel imprisoned you know I feel like I've got my prison greys on if I'm in a grey tracksuit I just feel that colours can be really soothing I like very pastel muted even colours Creams, beiges, soft colours, yeah. things that I feel I can wrap up in and almost hide within. And that's where I get my comfort. I'll never sit on the sofa without a throw. That's just my comfort. That's what I like. And I feel the texture as well. I always want something really soft, nothing hard. You know, we think about prison, we're sleeping on plastic mattress. We had a itchy, I can only describe it as an itchy blanket, similar blankets that you would get if you're in a police station. They're really coarse, but they're awful. You know, you've got to think about when things were washed. They wouldn't be using comfort. So everything was really crisp and hard. Mm. And what about this sort of layout of space? You know, is there something about corners and lines of sight and views? I'm hypervigilant. So if I go into a room, I, I didn't even notice I was doing this, but my partner said, you always do that. I will sit in the chair furthest corner away facing everywhere whether that's in a cafe restaurant wherever we go I need to be positioned where I can view everything that's going on so what so that someone couldn't come from behind yeah I do it even in work I was also talking about this the other day when we're in the office everybody puts the door open with the stopper when I'm alone I have to have every door closed now I'm not sure if that's institutionalized from being in the cell or that's how I feel safe I I can't have a door open. I need everything closed in. 
So yeah, definitely when you're positioning things for me, it would be so that I can look out onto the room. Yeah, absolutely. And what about, um, I think there's something around, tell me if you agree with this, the sort of confidentiality of, um, or when you're having difficult conversations with people. So I'm thinking probably more in the context of a women's centre or somewhere like Hope Street, where maybe you're telling a member of staff something or another woman. And actually, it's quite important, isn't it, that people aren't overhearing some of the things that you're saying. Absolutely. And I do think that when you've been through any trauma, you will have an element of trust issue. And I have it still. I'm really untrusting. So yeah, I think it's very important that when you are wanting to disclose anything or talk about something that's really personal or just traumatic to you in any way that you feel safe, you're in a safe environment to do that. And for me, that would be away from people with a door shut with maybe one member of staff. And I would need to feel that there was that confidentiality between us. Yeah. And I think there's also something about, um, and certainly from the conversations I've had over the years with with people about these things is the kind of um, women sometimes wanting to be involved, but at the same time feeling like they can attack and retreat. So whether that's someone at Hope Street and we're wanting them to engage, that they have the choice whether to engage and they can be front and center, but at the same time, they know that they can retreat to somewhere in the room and they could be by themselves? When I work with anybody, I work in a trauma-informed way. And the very first forefront of my mind is always choice. Mm. Remember, these women have probably never had choice before they've even got involved with the criminal justice system. They've probably been told what to do by a partner. They've probably been told what to do by social services. They've probably been told what to do by probation. You almost forget how to make a choice for yourself or a positive one. And I don't think that it always comes natural for people. So I think it's really important that you encourage choice and explore what that is to individual women as well. And what about light? Because, of course, you know, everyone has a different relationship with the dark, don't they? Um, Some love it, some hate it. Light's quite an important thing, certainly for me, for a feeling of uh, safety um, and having not had high levels of trauma in my life. Absolutely. And I think... For me, if I'm ever feeling um, anxious or out of control, I will always look out the window. And that was a grounding technique that I learned through therapy. And that is to open your window and focus on something like a tree or something that's going to make you feel safe, something that you can see that's not moving. And I think if we're talk- going back to the cell. You don't have that, do you? Mm. You're just locked in this really dark room with horrendous lighting like school lighting that's I'm sure is bad for you anyway so I do think that windows and looking out and the light natural light is really really important it's reminding me of a conversation I had in a big male prison it was in the long-term high secure estate and I was in the CSU so the closed supervision unit and for those listening who don't know what they are they're basically the prisons within the prisons and it's where they hold very dangerous people, might be terrorists or people who are an escape risk. And I remember discussing with a member of staff about how you could make these places just a bit better. I mean, fairly difficult, but there was definitely still some things that could absolutely have been done. And I said, what about classical music? They looked at me like I was absolutely mad. And I was like, well, no, look, I'm just coming up with ideas that are totally doable. And of course, that was sort of looked upon as sort of something that I don't know. I don't know whether 
that particular person was thinking, well, that's that's a bit liberal or we don't want the men listening to classical music. But I was like, there's so many things that are in our control in prisons. And of course, we all talk about how awful it is and it sort of is. But then there are some things that could be done quite easily. Trauma and being in a traumatic situation. It's your senses, isn't it? Your your hearing, your sight, your touch, your smell, all of those are completely heightened. And I think if you can direct them onto something like classical music or like looking out at nature, it really does help. Well, exactly. And not only would it help calm the mood for the men or the women, you know, that therefore creates a better environment for the staff to be able to do their jobs in, you know. So the architects sitting down, people are sort of beginning to design something, be it a prison, be it whatever it might be. Lived experience is so important, obviously, and we had a lot of that during the design process for Hope Street, um, and including yourself. So what's the best way to engage with people with lived experience, would you say, if someone was embarking upon a, a build? Yeah, I think it would be gathering lots of voices, not just a small because again, if we're talking about choice, then lots of different people would have different ideas of what's safe for them. What I think is safe might not be for another woman. Um, and I think that's probably the key. And it's something I talk about a lot generally when we're talking about lived experiences. We're usually using a really small group of people, but we need to widen that and, and speak to more and get more voices and more ideas so that we can get a truer picture um, of, of what people really want to need. And I think when we talk about architecture, that's where it begins. You know, we all see the end result, but I'm sure the architects themselves think about calming spaces and what's going to work and what won't work. For somebody like myself, that's not something I would have always considered. But actually, that's the root of it, isn't it? That's where it starts. Yeah. And it's kind of like, what do you want this building to do? And what do you want this building to say? And do you want this building to be to have a positive impact or, on people or do you want it to have the reverse? Because I guess some people build thinking, well, I don't really care. It's just got to be as cheap as possible. Yeah. I think it's how do you want this building to feel, isn't it? How do mm. you want people to feel when they walk into this building? I know when I walked into Hope Street, I was so nervous that day, travelled. And I walked in, I was like, oh, it's so lovely. It's so, oh my God, I feel so calm. Everything just went down when I walked in. I don't know whether that was a combination of the people, of the colours, of of the schemes, of the pictures. But for me, and I think I've talked spoke about it before, when I walked in, it was like, oh okay, I'm fine. Everything's yeah. fine. You know, it had that lovely, welcoming, warm feeling. Yeah, which is excellent. I have to say I, I felt the same. I know I had a lot to do with <laughs> a lot of the uh the design and the color and stuff but uh even when I was stressed there running around I'd be like oh this is actually quite a calming place even if we are having to shout at builders and I think the garden area is just so beautiful and it's like that was the place I gravitated to on that day when I started to feel a bit overwhelmed I'd sort of shuffle out towards then it was like again just really nice to just have the garden look at the greenery look at the tree bring yourself back yeah Exactly. And, you know, and in time, there'll be the raised beds, won't there? And, you know, there's different areas that you can sit in the garden and be by yourself or with one other person to be able to have those conversations and maybe just look at the leaves on the trees fluttering in the wind or, as you say, looking at the sky or the pesky seagulls that keep (laughs) sitting on the skylights. (laughs) Um, Are there any other 
sort of big things that you think are important to this sort of conversation, be it about how spaces heal or or how they harm. One thing I was just thinking about was the difference between what men might need compared to women. And I think it's important to say, isn't it, that what us women might want, um, of course, that will differ from woman to woman, but that might be very different, mightn't it, to what men might need. That's really important when we look at the prison system as well, isn't it? Because the cell is the same, whether you're a man or a woman, the bedding's the same, that everything's the same. Nothing is tailored for women because we make up such a small amount of the prison service. But I would say that I work with women every day. And I know that most of the women thrive when they're in a really nice, comfortable surrounding. And an example of that is there was a woman that moved into one of the supported housings I work in. And we made a real effort to create a space for her, cushions, throws, picture frames, just different things that would make her feel comfortable. And I noticed in her, she took more self-care. She showered more. She, her mental health was better. She had more clarity. She managed her medication better. And that was just one woman that we, we did something very different for her because we, we needed to encourage her to, to engage in a different way. But that worked. I saw that firsthand. Her whole persona, her whole, everything about her changed the next morning from waking up in that space that was comfortable yeah. and clean and clean towels and shower gel and a throw over and a bed made. She was like a different woman the next morning. Exactly. And it sort of irritates me so much. You know, this week, obviously, people have been talking a lot about prisons because of the Secretary of State's speech he had to make in the Houses of Parliament due to prisons being full. And, you know, and I sort of think we're about trying to change people's behaviours, aren't we, for the better. That's really what it's all about. It's about behavioural change. And, and it's like, how do we get that? Well, we have to look at everything. And of course, the place that the person is residing in, be they a man, woman or child, it fundamentally starts there, doesn't it? Because as you say, what does the building say? Well, if the building, you know, I've been into toilets in prisons where there's cockroaches, you know, you don't feel brilliant and walls are falling down and and you feel revolting and you don't feel that safe. And that's me as a visitor just sort of going in and sort of going out again. But, you know, this stuff really isn't rocket science, is it? And it's how you treat somebody, isn't it? It's how you make them feel. That lady that I talk about, she felt valued. She felt worthy. She felt that somebody cared how she slept. It changes the person. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Lily, as always, thank you so much for your insights and thank you for coming on the pod again. Next, I speak to Dr. Madeline Petrillo, Associate Professor of Criminology from Greenwich University and Mike Worthington, former director of Snug Architects and lead architect on Hope Street, on what they have learned about designing a space for women in the justice system that aims to be trauma-informed. My name is Madeleine Petrillo. I'm Associate Professor in Criminology at the University of Greenwich. I'm Mike Worthington. I'm a director at Snug Architects, and we designed Hope Street for one small thing. Madeleine, you have been conducting research about the consultation process with women on the design of Hope Street. Can you tell us a bit more about what it is exactly you've been up to and why? Yeah, definitely. So the research today has been exploring how you apply the principles of trauma-informed practice to architecture. So how you actually materialise those principles of safety, trust, 
empowerment, collaboration, peer support and um, inclusivity into like actual bricks and mortar. What's exciting about this project is it's this has never been done before. As far as we're aware in the UK, Hope Street is the first building to intentionally attempt to translate these principles of trauma-informed practice into the design and build of an, of an actual space, physical space. So there was no theory or no model to follow, um, which meant Mike and the architectural team had this huge task that was not just about creating a new type of building but almost a whole new spatial concept because Hope Street's really unique as, as a space it's it has to be lots of things which makes it quite complex in some ways it's a criminal justice space where women will be serving their sentences but it's also intended as a treatment space a space for children a social space for the community and a trauma-informed space, of course, and there are some potential conflicts in all of those different roles and functions. So the research has been examining how the architects worked primarily with women who are going to inhabit Hope Street in quite an experimental way to create this new kind of space. Okay, and so the research that you've been doing, was that particularly around the women that we at One Small Thing consulted with? You know, the justice-involved women who sort of said, this is what we'd like, this is what we don't like. Because actually, my husband's always saying to me, oh, this trauma-informed chat is like jargon. You know, what actually is it? And I always explain it by saying, it's simply putting the trauma that people may have suffered at the forefront of what you're building or designing, or maybe a group that you're running. Would you agree? Is that a good, a fair summary? Yeah, absolutely. What we've done with the research is um, Mike and the team, the Hope Street staff team, as they were, did some consultations with the women that Mike can probably talk more about. He shared the outputs of those consultations with us, and we, as the research team, looked through all those outputs to try and identify how the women were interpreting some of these principles of trauma-informed practice as they apply to space in terms of the sorts of materials that are used, uh, what they want the layout of the space to be, uh, exactly what spaces are within Hope Street, so what type of shared spaces are there, what type of residential spaces are there, etc. And then what we did after we'd done that, we spoke, did a focus group with the architectural team to understand how they'd interpreted these consultations with the women as well and how they'd been able to translate some of the things the women had said into the actual design and build of Hope Street. Okay, and has that piece of research concluded or where are you up to in that? Yeah, so that that part of research is is concluded. What were the main things that you sort of found out about it? Were there any sort of surprises or, you know, from an academic point of view, was there anything sort of exciting that came out of it? There was a lot that was exciting. There's not much difference in them. They're very much driven by utilitarian aims of like keeping people in or keeping people out um minimizing risk all of those sorts of things so it was really difficult for me to imagine how you could create a space that had to sort of maintain some of those aspects of it being a criminal justice space to an extent but was something that was so completely different and speaking to um 
you know, Mike and the architectural team about how they achieved that was just um, really incredible. He At the focus group, uh, something Matt, I don't know if you'll remember saying this, Mike, but something he uh, reflected on was the story of Hope Street and, you know, the story of a building. What's the story of a building? And I think in Hope Street, much more than I ever imagined possible, you can see the women's stories in every aspect of the building. So even the fact, like Mike pointed out, that the front door handle is made of wood and it's um, it's sort of a round shape. So that's so very different to going into any sort of office building where it's our prison, where it's metal doors and there's lots of hard surfaces. So when you move through Hope Street, the layout of it, the materials that are used the different types of spaces that exist there, they're all there very, very intentionally and from a trauma, and they've all been filtered through this trauma-informed lens. And Mike, do you want to say a little bit about the process of designing Hope Street? I mean, you know, we've obviously spent a lot of time together over the past couple of years, you know, to a certain extent. I wouldn't say doing it together quite. You're the architect. (laughs) You're the expert. But of course, we have worked together on that, haven't we? But how, how was it for you designing designing Hope Street? Well, I think we did do it together because we didn't start, if you like, with a completely blank sheet of paper. We started off the back of quite a lot of thinking that you had done. um, I think we've mentioned before the the design guide with with Heatherwick. That actually created a level of ambition for the project. We were captivated by the brief, the opportunity, uh, and could see a difference it could make, but it did mean that we were pedaling quite quickly. And you know, you asked, you raised the question before. Well, you know, what is this trauma-informed design? Well, that's something I've asked, you know, or we've asked together as a team several times. But what does that really mean, and how can you really evidence that? And where does that actually make a difference, sort of on the ground? So we that is a question that we've kept asking, if you like, um, and it feels that this building may be more than lots of others because it's new. It means that you're sort of starting from first principles, which is exciting to have a a sort of blank sheet of paper. And it's also can be a bit kind of intimidating. So we were conscious at the beginning that we didn't want to define what Hope Street was by what it shouldn't be. So if you're saying, well, we're not trying to create a new prison, but you can't really design a building with some soul and some intention by saying it is not a prison because there's lots of things that are not a prison. You have to start, you know, you can look at those are the pitfalls that we want to avoid and the sensitivities, the triggers that come with that. But I think you need to choose a positive identity to say this is what it's going to be and then allow that kind of concept to be sort of driven through the big decisions and then eventually sort of the smaller decisions. But that was another challenge, wasn't it? I remember my father-in-law saying to me, but what is it, Edwina? And I think he wanted me to sort of say a house, a home, either a hotel, a coffee shop, you know, something that he knew. And I found it really challenging because I was like, it isn't anything that we've got. I mean, the closest that we've got is the women's centres, but they're all quite different in many ways, some of which aren't residential. So I was like, it's Hope Street. (laughs) And he's 85. And he just kept going, but I don't understand. That was definitely, and, and in my mind's eye, I, I could see it, you know, because I, I knew and I know um, what the building has to do. Um, but I think having the coffee shop and the element of where we 
bring the community in. And that's, um, Madeline, what you were saying about the narrative around the building. It's sort of what, do you want it to be that's where the bad women are? Or do you want it to be, this is where we serve the new coffee shop and it serves good coffee? Or there's activity space and there's yoga classes that the community can come into? Or do you want the building to be talked about because it's a beautiful new building? I think it has several different sort of kind of roles to play in and because it communicates to the people, you know, the general public, it communicates to the staff, it communicates to the women. My starting position was we're designing a trauma-informed residential kind of space, something new for women who have have, um, experienced the justice system. And, you know, my personal experience was not going to lend me and equip me to answer you know, answer those questions. So asking some open questions about how might the building be perceived and then later on testing some of our ideas back and saying, well, this is what we've heard, this is what we've put forward. How do you feel about it? But I remember being struck by some of the earlier responses. We were asking questions about, well, what about this building? What about this? What do you think? And we were sort of interrupted by some of the responses from the women who said, yeah, 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 but is the case officer who's going to be with me at the beginning going to be with me all the way through the process? And it, for me, that was kind of like, ah, the architecture of this of Hope Street wasn't going to solve everything. It was actually going to be probably the relationships that are embedded within that. And I think that led me to probably the humbling realisation that we didn't possess the solution But the building is a hugely significant, visible item that will keep messaging to to everybody involved in it. But actually, the building itself wasn't going to make the difference. So we started to reframe the question, what is the building's role to support that service rather than, you know, what, what is the building going to solve by itself? And that's where we started to think, well, in order to engage in a more relational way with the women to open up for them to feel confident and willing to open up their most traumatic experiences, there has to be a trust between one small thing and the women. And the quicker they're able to engage and create an environment of trust, the much better for the women and for the kind of the service. So we started to say, well, what is the building's role in creating trust between women? And that starts to get us into first impressions, but it also started to make us try and reconsider the building, not as an institution, because the building as an institution, it means the women will come along and be processed sort of through a system. They'll arrive, then they'll be kind of moved on. Whereas if you can say, maybe they're going to be at Hope Street for three months, that's actually a portion of your life and it is where you belong as a home. And therefore, it's not a home. It's got many different facets, the coffee shop being one, but it's a place where you can belong. And so we ultimately, we created this kind of filter where all decisions went through, how is it, a, how is it going to be perceived as a home, not an institution? And that that essentially answered the question for lots of small design decisions all the way from the fact that when you look at the front elevation, it looks like three more informal houses made of brick because that's what you expect a, a home to be, um, right the way down to the door handle, you know, that it is something that is tactile, not an institutional kind of corporate sort of headquarters. Um, 
and therefore the the role of the building in supporting what one's more thing needed to to provide rather than well if we design something beautiful that will you know ultimately solve the world's ills and madeline do you feel that that sort of came through what mike's saying as someone who's been involved but sort of more at arm's length yeah, absolutely. I think Mike's right. The the architecture of the building is just one part of um, how Hope Street can support women to make the changes they want to make in their life. But um, it's a part that's been completely neglected generally in uh, definitely in the criminal justice system. For women who've experienced trauma as well, like we know from trauma theory that trauma really lingers in, in the body and it's really triggered by what we see and hear and feel and smell. All those things that, as Mike said, that experience of space, what it feels like to be in a space can be very, very triggering. And that's, that's what's so unique about Hope Street, that it, it pays such attention to that um, embodied experience of the space in a way to really minimise the potential for re-traumatising women. Mike talked about sort of the trust principle, which is one of the principles of um, trauma-informed practice, but something else we talked about in the focus group that I thought was just so thoughtful was um, the empowerment principle, really, and how you give women control over that space and ownership over the space. And um, Mike and the team talked about how really that informed the whole layout of Hope Street. That uh, although um, you put it really nicely, Mike, that although you come through the front door, actually the healing process starts at the back of the building where the residential spaces are and women are able to have their private time there and then they can choose to gradually engage more and more with with other residents and then finally with the public so they can come from their residential spaces into the therapeutic garden and there's there's private spaces within the garden they can stay and then to the shared residential spaces and therapeutic spaces and then finally when they're feeling able and when they um, want to do so they can engage with the more public facing aspects of the building. And I think that's a key point on I'm doing inverted commas with my fingers resettlement you know that word that's banded around so much resettlement first of all you know the term resettle means that you're resettling people who were once settled and actually what we know is the cohort of women that we work with have often never been settled so they're not resettling but putting that to one side you know also you can't resettle people if you put them in a building in the middle of nowhere and don't allow the sort of architecture and the placement of the building to actually allow them to mix with other people but actually you're not going to take particularly women in the situations that they are that we work with and expect them to go out and what make friends and go and be really sociable and go and join clubs. You know, that's just not a reality. So actually what we learned through building the clink restaurants inside prisons, you need to bring the public, you need to invite them in in a way that doesn't threaten them or frighten them. And, you know, you need to be like, oh, here we are. Here's a comfortable space for you. What is, you know, what is Hope Street going to offer in its build to the general public? And I think that's one of the reasons that we got our planning permission through so quickly, because we actually were thinking about how we bring the others in. In in many ways, you have to keep some abusive men, obviously, out. But then you're trying to bring the public in. You're trying to keep the women safe. You know, there's a whole lot going on there, isn't there? 
And of course, the other group that um, we haven't touched on is the staff. You know, it's an office, it's a working place. And I'm very passionate about people having good working environments because we all work better if we have that. I think that's another, another key aspect to it all. The other thing that people have said to me a lot when I've been taking them around the building is, uh, and it always makes me chuckle. I don't know why, because it's not that funny. But um, <laughs> when people say, it's so nice, they won't want to leave. And you've probably had that a lot, Mike. I was quite comfortable staying my night. I could have stayed, <laughs> I could have stayed longer myself. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But, but I think what it does, and of course, there's nothing wrong with people saying that because it is a lovely building. But it doesn't remove the chaos from someone's life, actually. No. It might give them temporary respite. It doesn't immediately kind of make someone go, oh, all that awful trauma that I've suffered, I'm just going to leave it at the front door and I'm going to walk in and all my fears are going to disappear and I'm going to go on the straight and narrow and everything's going to be great. Oh, yeah, and my addiction, I've left that at the door too and I'm never going to take drugs ever again. Yeah, it's the Instagram versus sort of reality. Taking a picture of yourself in a nice environment doesn't mean that yourself and your well-being and your mental state is, you know, reflective of the, the scenario sort of around. But this, the environment that is around you will also have an effect on them. They're two different things, but they have a relationship between them, don't they? Exactly. Yes, we've designed and put a building up. But actually, what my intention was to redesign one part of the justice system. So that is actually the processes. It's how you train the staff. It's how you bring the staff on board. It's those interactions within the building. So even if there's chaos and someone gets recalled to prison, is that done well? Is that done calmly? Is that done in a way that the police are happy? Is it done in the way that the woman is happy? You know, that all really matters. And we've already got examples of those things happening and then being done in an efficient, calm, measured one might say, trauma-informed way, which is really important. You've got the Venn diagram of public and private spaces that overlap. But for the women, having the second entrance, which is private and is not public, I think is really important to say, you know, what is a, what is a healing space? Well, a healing space needs to allow a sense of dignity and you know because if you've got some dignity then you have value it's really important though i think like almost everything you just said then is about um remembering these women and their children as human beings and i think so much of the criminal justice system and the spaces particularly within the criminal justice system are dehumanizing and hope street has prioritized that you know like you say it's a home for women and children um primarily Exactly. I think another aspect is, um, well, a couple of things. So uh, the soundproofing and acoustics, I think, is crucial to that feeling of security and staff having conversations that people should not overhear. That comes into the safeguarding and obviously being professional. Um, women talking about their deepest, darkest traumas in group and in interventions. It's good that other people can't hear that for them to be able to trust the groups. Um, but I was really struck that when you walk into some of the rooms, you almost feel it. You know, you really walk in, don't you? And, and I don't know, uh, I'm not clever enough to know what the word is of when you walk into a room and you feel that. Um... I think it's the reverberation time of the, of, the, of the acoustics. And I think you're probably particularly thinking of the, the hope room and the hope room, because that's where, you know, the, the uh, revealing of trauma, the talking therapy, the healing trauma course happens, and only that happens in that location. That was designed to feel 
very different to everything else. So the, the general brief, the coffee shop has its own kind of feel. It feels like a coffee shop, a nice one, not a huge one, but something that's more intimate. But the general feel of the remaining spaces are, what does it feel like to be in, in a home? So all the rooms are sort of designed around um, like a being, being a lounge. So they are uh, pendant lighting or wall lights or, or lamps on there. So they feel like lounge, lounge sort of spaces. Um, but the Hope Room is different. It's, it's vaulted. It's the only vaulted space that the women will go into. It feels like a timber cocoon. I think, Edwin, you described it as the church. At one point, it's got a slightly otherness feel. And it's kind of top lit. There's lots of lighting, you know, natural lighting that goes in generally. But trying to find something that's, that communicates, something different goes on here. But the acoustics that you mentioned, it's one whole spine wall that runs up is in this sort of timber acoustic pattern. So it sort of sucks the sound in there. And as soon as you step in, you talk more quietly You if because it feels calm and it's not echoey. So you're not having to talk louder for, to be heard over, over the echo. You can actually drop your level of voice and it feels like you almost relax and everyone starts to talk a little bit more quietly kind of when they're in there. And it feels like a room you could actually share a secret in because even, even though the reverberation is different to acoustic transfer for what you might hear on the other side, but it feels like a space that you could actually have a, a one-to-one conversation one. Um, and uh, I think that's ended up working out, you know, it's kind of very well, you know, those combinations, but especially the acoustics. Mm, exactly. And the other thing I was going to say is the importance of, you know, building for longevity, not putting up buildings with sort of cheap rubbish materials like rack, for example, or something like that. Um, so we went for Briam Outstanding and we won't know whether we've got that for a while. Can you explain in very simple layman's terms what Briam is for the listener and why it was important to us? So Briam is a way of measuring sustainability. So sustainability involves lots of different things. Mostly people think about sustainability being environmental kind of performance and insulation and things like that. And it includes that, but it's also about, you know, is everyone going to have to drive? You know, is it in the middle of nowhere or is the public sort of transport? But it's also about the robustness of materials. If you design something that needs replacing every single week, it is less sustainable than something that has some longevity. You have to tick lots of boxes and achieve credits from daylighting and heating and lighting, overheating, lots of different sort of areas. So we have pursued that. Um, and one of the aspects is about the robustness. And that that was a much wider question than in Hope Street's instance than what's the replacement rate, because the most robust building probably looks much more like a prison because you can't damage it everything's bolted down um and therefore it nothing will need replacing because it's it's designed to take loads of abuse but the problem for hope street is uh, much greater because the perception of the prison is i can't be trusted they don't trust me and therefore you're not likely to extend that trust so we had a very involved back and forth conversation around well where do we position that and, and ultimately we came to the conclusion together that hope street would need to risk abuse and in you know, individual abuse in order to actually achieve the greater aim which was to build trust and build those sort of relationships so there was an acceptance that there would be some ongoing budget for replacement 
And Madeline, um, back to your research, what are the what are the next steps from the research that you've already done? Yeah, so from here, what's going to be really interesting is how the women experience Hope Street. Um, now that there's now that they're all women living in there. So this is important for a couple of reasons, really, but I think um, in future, if there are going to be more Hope Streets uh, rolled out, then it's <laughs> about evolving this concept of co-production in the in the design process, um, firstly, and then secondly, um, making sure that the things that have been put in place, the way it's been designed, the decisions about materials and space and all of those things are ha- actually having the intended effect on, on the women. So what we really want to do now is start working with the women using some um, quite creative methodologies to help evaluate how successful the design is against, you know, the aims of Hope Street. That would be really fascinating, won't it? We all know that whatever lens we look at anything through, you know, that was one of the difficulties of designing Hope Street, wasn't it, Mike? It's sort of, and even though I've worked in this area for for so many years, I'm still not a woman who's experienced the things that they have. So I don't see things in the way that they do. And you know, I can't experience it like a child. Yeah. So some of it is just impossible. So obviously co-production is the closest you'll ever you'll ever get. But it will be very interesting to hear how the women experienced it. It'll be interesting to try and think how how do you gather that information? What has been experienced as part of a whole thing that actually it's quite difficult to untangle and go can you keep a bit like a plunk can you keep pulling things out and say we don't need that we don't need oh the ball's full people now don't want to sort of trust the environment anymore what is how is that and what's actually fundamentally uh, integral to communicating and supporting you know um, that level of trust and, and, and relationship and it's trying to work out what is the best way for us all to reflect and get that level of you know, reflection back from a number of different people. How does the architecture support the experience that is held rather than, oh, which colour is it? You know, should it be green or should it be blue? We know it shouldn't be grey. That was very clear right from the very beginning. (laughs) One of my bugbears. Can't be prison (laughs) grey. That's right. And I think we we avoided that successfully. And And probably even the consistency of the warm biophilic textured pattern of we've got the buff brick we've got the oak timber and we've got the green zinc roof but that palette actually consistently applied across the scheme does create a sense of calmness and it's probably not one of those ones but actually a lot of it is just how do you frame those things and you know how have we how have we achieved that sense of openness and natural natural light that doesn't then tip into, oh, I'm feeling observed because I live in a fishbowl and I can't be trusted because it's always about observation. But, you know, those those aspects which are really on a kind of how do you try and achieve something in between or something that achieves both of those things together, those very tricky balances. And we talked about, well, most of the, you know, hostile institutional experiences are a lot of underinvestment. But the answer is not to say let's create a spa retreat or a four-season hotel lobby. That's not the right. It won't allow 
women to feel like they can belong as their home because it will feel otherworldly. So it's not just a linear spectrum between something very poor and something very, very shiny and, you know, award win. It was that the purpose had to be something that was how are you going to belong and feel that you've been valued in that process, but it's not on just a straight sort of spectrum. Those are the probably harder questions that I think we've attempted to answer. And actually, is the building experienced in the way it was intended is probably important, I think. Yeah. And I think also we need to keep in mind, don't we, and and for the listener, that actually women might come to us through the court, so they've never been in a prison. They'll never go to a prison. They should never... Some of them should never have even got to a prison, right? Because they should be given a community sentence and can't if they're homeless and they can't if they're abusers in their home, which is why they get up tariff to prison, which is a dysfunction of the of the justice system. So some women will come to us having never experienced prison, and then some will come to us directly from prison. And of course, then the difference in those mindsets is also huge, isn't it? So again, just giving giving, I guess, uh a little bit of a nod to the challenges of how you design, <laughs> how you design for all these different experiences. And um, and then, of course, designing for um, women who have their children with them. And then, of course, we'll have many women resident, resident with us who are mothers who've had their children removed. And the um, sort of complication and the uh, yeah, and the sensitivities that surround that. But um, I think, you know, architecturally, we we thought about that long and hard too, didn't we? Yeah, we certainly did. I think the original site, we were, we were finding that very difficult because it was not quite as big as we'd like to be. Everything was very close, but actually the acquisition of the neighbouring site in order to pull the creche and create something that was actually a dedicated facility for the children. So that worked well and allowed almost the children who are there, some more freedom within that space, rather, but not necessarily meaning that for the women who have had their children removed, and that is part of their trauma, faced with children in their environs or kind of 24-7, was a really important reflection (laughs) mid-process to say, I think this is something that this is what we're trying to achieve. We are struggling. Here's an opportunity. And actually, we can deliver better for both uh, women who have had their children taken away, as well as for for the women and the children who are there together, uniquely for kind of Hope Street, for a space that feels dedicated to both. That was a great mid-project outcome, I think. Well, listen, thank you both so much for your time today. It's been nice to to run over it again and sort of now that the building's open and... um, it's funny, every time I go back, I sort of see a different thing and sort of feel a different thing. And I'm sure that will carry on going for, for quite some time as, as Hope Street fills up. And Madeline, look forward to the rest of your research and, and seeing how women and hopefully there'll be some children at some point that will be able to articulate some views as well. So thank you both very much. Thank you. Thanks very much. Irina. We will explore lots of innovative design processes and examples of harmful and healing spaces across this series. And Hope Street is one example to get us started. To close this episode, we hear from one of the women who took part in the consultation process for the design of Hope Street and her impressions of the physical environment when she visited the final building at the opening event this year. Having been in the consultations for the design of Hope Street, seeing the final building, I felt proud to have played a small part in an amazing project, creating a safe, secure home and the realistic hope of recovery 
for vulnerable women and their children. I notice a homely, not clinical environment with a strong and committed staff team focused on delivering trauma-informed care, unlike anything I've ever seen before. I felt heard, seen and understood by those I was surrounded by during the consultation events and felt really lucky to have been a part of it. Links relevant to this episode can be found in the pod notes below. If you enjoyed listening, we would love it if you would subscribe. Also rate, review and best of all, share this episode. Justice is produced for One Small Thing by the London Podcast Company. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hold up. 